Did you know that ancient Greece invented fun dip? Except with a twist, John. A smart drivel twist. One of the greatest pieces of technology ever invented by man. But you have to find the juice from sauerkraut. And would we have to and kiss one of the players? We are going to Ebbets Field, John. The subject of a very important song by John McClane. Uga, 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 e. Uga, 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 aga. Uga, 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 evil. It's time for Smart Dribble. Hello, everyone. This is your co-host, Kurt Schneider. And I'm your other co-host, John Ellenthal. And apparently you can make anything rhyme with drivel as long as you end whatever you're saying before with evil. We're going to be talking about top five travel destinations or top, doesn't have to be five, top places we'd like to travel. You know, places we'd want to go see, vacation, except with a twist, John, a smart drivel twist. These places we want to visit, these travel destinations are throughout history. So we can go any place we wanted to visit on vacation in history. Okay. I can see you riding the dinosaurs back in prehistoric times right now. Yeah, like the magic school bus used to do, or one of those. Ooh, remember her? What was that lady's name? Miss Mrs. Frizzle. Oh my God, it almost rhymed with dribble, except it doesn't. Miss Frizzle, voiced by Lily Tomlin. Now, John, I have been lucky enough to have visited Egypt. I went back in 1973. It's a place I really want to go back because. I went to Cairo, and I saw some of the pyramids, and I did not go to Alexandria, which I'm dying to go. But John, here's the, here's the trick. I'd like to go to Alexandria in 200 BC or BCE. Okay. Wouldn't it be easier just to go to Alexandria, Virginia, Kurt? It would be, but it wouldn't be as fun, John. Can I tell you why I want to go then? I think I know why. Tell me. Because that was when the great library of everything ever written was still there. That library, I've been dying to see. I would love to see, as, in, as is everyone else that would ever want to go to a library. It, its sort of motto or its mission was to collect a copy of each and every book and scroll in the world. Now, I know why you had to travel back in time to visit it, because unfortunately, the library is no longer there. One of the things they think of why it wasn't, it burned down. And it burned down in about 60, 70, I think, B.C. And do you know why it burned down, John? Because man invented fire, Kurt. Well, true. But the story goes that Julius Caesar burned it down because he was in there, in Alexandria. And there were people coming after him. And he used it as a, as a way to sort of distract them. And he burned down the library. So, Kurt, what do you think the library card looked like? I don't know. It could be a sphinx that they maybe had to bring with them. The other reason I wanted to go there besides at that time is besides the library, the lighthouse was still standing then. And that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was about 100 meters in height, which at the time was an engineering marvel. So anyway, I would like to go back to Alexandria, Egypt at that time. It is truly one of the great losses of humanity that that library is no longer there. You mentioned lighthouses. Yes. And that takes me to my first vacation destination in history. And that is the place that the lighthouse was invented. It was invented in ancient Greece. 
which as you know, is has a lot of water around it. You got the Aegean and the Adriatic. But I think going to vacation in a beautiful place with all of those wonderful beaches and island back in ancient times when they were inventing everything left and right would be an awesome time to visit on vacation. So everyone knows that ancient Greece, Greece is the birthplace of so many things. And you know the big ones are, of course, democracy, theater, algebra, of course, the Olympics. Greek salad. Greek salad. They, of course, are indeed the inventors of feta cheese, which should surprise nobody. But they also invented the shower back uh, all the way back in 4th century BC. And believe it or not, they invented central heating back in 350 BC. And did you know they invented the original escape room? Uh, yes, the labyrinth. Very good, Kurt. I was going to make up the escape room, but your answer is your answer is good enough that I'm going to stick with, and I will make up something else. Did you know that ancient Greece invented fun dip? I made that up since you took away my other made up option. It's hard to get a hot shower when you travel, so I think that's a good place to go. Listen, when you're on vacation, what do you want? You want you want warm temperatures, unless you're skiing. You want beautiful seasides and beaches. You want incredible islands to visit. You would like a hot shower at the end of the day. I didn't say hot, though. They invented the shower. I'll have to check on the hot. I like ruins, but if I'm in ancient Greece, I'm not seeing ruins. I'm seeing the real thing. Wouldn't you like to see pre-ruins? Wouldn't you want to see the Parthenon in Athens on the Acropolis? How to be extraordinary. I thought you were going to say you wanted to be on the beach, but then it would be the time where the 300 at Thermopylae had to defend themselves against against the Ethiopians and Xerxes. You know what that Thermopylae was- remind, makes me think of? Thalidomide, that terrible drug that caused birth defects in the nineteen mid like 1950s. Thalidomide. Okay. It was a drug that pregnant women took, and unfortunately it had a really severe consequences for the I get it. That's, just, that's a tough association. What's your word? Thermopolis. I said thalidomide. What's so difficult about the association there? Thermopylae. That was a great movie, 300. Not sure it was too truthful, but okay. Give me another one. Where do you, do you want me to go again? I don't want you to go again. I need you to go again. Well, I'm going to continue going from farthest back in history to modern days. So I was at 200 BC. I'm now going to go uh, up to 1200 AD, the Dark Ages. And I'm going to go down to southern England because Cornwall in southern England is beautiful. And you can see the sea and you have the moors and it's gorgeous. And there's a place, and I've been there, John. It's called Dozemary Pool in Cornwall. I'd like to go back, but I'd like to go back in 1200 because I'd like to be in that maybe swimming or or sitting around outside that Dozemary Pool, which is a pond, when a hand will come out of the lake holding a sword. Loch Ness Monster. No. <laughs> the Lady of the Lake with Excalibur for King Arthur to come get it. I knew it was King Arthur, but wasn't it in a rock? No. Well, he threw it into the lake and she brought it back to him in Dozemary Pool. And did he throw it in the lake after he pulled it out of the rock? Probably, since he had to have it at some point. It does seem logical. Well, yeah. that was probably a pretty trippy moment. Right? And you, you're, you're at a beautiful place anyway. You can't go to a pub in 1200, but which are fun to do in England, but you can go to Dozemary Pool and see Arthur get the Excalibur. Since you brought up King Arthur and, of course, the Knights of the Round Table, I would like to mention a little shout out 
to one of the greatest pieces of technology ever invented by man, although it's not thought of as a piece of technology. And that is the round table. When you're sitting at a round table, everybody can see everybody. Everybody can be a part of the conversation. Eight people at a round table versus eight people at a rectangular table. Rectangular, you pretty much talk to the person to your left and your right, maybe across from you. The round table is the perfect shape table. And if I ever buy another dining room table in my life, Kurt, it is going to be round because the round table is magnificent. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why they give credit to Arthur for inventing it, because every night was considered equal. And these were knights from all over England. And they came and they thought in their area, they were number one this, number one that. And they were fighting. And he needed them to be together as a team. He was like a coach. And he put them in the round table so that no one was, was above anyone else. It is both symbolically important and practically important. Do you think he was pretty lucky when he threw Excalibur into the lake that there happened to be a lady there ready to return it? What if he threw it into a different lake and there was no lady there? You know, he was guarded by, I think, Morgana, and she was a druid. And, you know, Arthur was sort of half druid and half Christian. He was the transition from druid paganism into Christianism. But wasn't Morgana, Morgana that lady who went to all the baseball stadiums and would run <laughs> to the field and kiss one of the players? That was her thing for like a decade back in yeah. the 80s? Yeah. This is, maybe she was reinvented as that woman, yes. But... That was Arthur's shtick. He was uniting England. And what's also good is we forgot during our movies episode to talk about Monty Python and a Holy Grail, possibly the greatest movie of all great time. Great movie, great movie. So, Kurt, we have a sponsor for today's episode. Love it. Who is it, John? It's my father. He doesn't know he's sponsoring, so this is a gratis sponsorship. Excellent. I, I don't normally do these kinds of things, but you know what? Hey, he's my father. So my father, whose name is Ira, Ira Ellenthal, just published his latest book about selling. Each and every chapter is a brief, entertaining, sometimes outrageous, real-life anecdote about hard-earned sales lesson um, that my father picked up during his 60-plus year career, leading brands like U.S. News and World Report, The Atlantic, New York Daily News. And I have heard people refer to my father as the greatest salesperson they've ever met. So he has poured all of that know-how and experience into a book, and while it's true that technology has changed a lot, has changed selling a lot over the last 20 plus years, the truth is buyers and what motivates them has not changed. So if you're interested, the name of the book is The Last Book About Selling You'll Ever Need by Ira Ellenthal, and you can find it on Amazon. Well, I'm for one, I'm going to go buy it. Thank you for that. I'm all for learning how to sell better. I will bring you an autographed copy, Kurt, because my father is a fan of the podcast, and I'm sure he would be delighted to give you an autographed version. Kurt, right. I would like to tell you about my next vacation spot in history. Please. It doesn't go as far back as yours does, but I'm going to take you back to the 1930s, 1940s in Israel, before the Israeli Israel War for Independence. At that point, Israel was controlled by the British, I believe. They had a big problem. Because of the British blockade, they could not get bullets. The British ships literally had a blockade that did not allow any supplies to get in. So a rather enterprising group of young people. I should mention first that Tel Aviv is a beautiful city right there along the Mediterranean. A lot of fun stuff going on, restaurants along the beach, a great place to vacation. 
And of course, great place, beautiful, great baba ganoush, great hummus. It's wonderful. Yes, it is a great place, Kurt. It's a great place to vacation. But just outside of Tel Aviv, there is this extraordinary place that was constructed in the 1940s to give the Israeli freedom fighters the bullets they would need to ultimately win their battles. A group of young people actually created a secret bullet factory about eight meters below the surface of a kibbutz. And these young people, 18 to 21, if they had been discovered, they would have been killed. But they would basically every day at the start of the day's work travel down this circular staircase to about 25 feet below the surface where they would hand make bullets. They had lathes, they had a firing range to make sure everything was good. And they had to invent everything they would need to actually make bullets. During the course of the time the bullet factory ran, they made 2.4 million bullets for the resistance. Out of what? They must have had the raw material, the metal but they and the gunpowder, but they basically had to set up a, a largely manual process. They did have some machinery. Like I said, they had a lathe, but they had to make these bullets by hand. And they also had to keep their identity, their job secret from the other kibbutz members because they're all going out in the field getting tan all day. And suddenly yeah. you don't get very tan being 25 feet below the Earth's surface. So they actually created the first ever basically tanning machine. They had UV lights that would give them the appearance of, of having received, you know, been in the sun. In any, I've never heard of these people. Brilliant. You know, it, it is brilliant. And the factory stopped operating in 1948. And so this place is 30 minutes outside of Tel Aviv. No one knew about it. In fact, it was not until 1987 that the factory was restored and turned into a museum. And it is, I had the chance to see it and to have been there when they were actually operating and dealing with the pressures. When it's working. Yes. Wow. All right. So you're sort of around the Mediterranean, the Adriatic, right? The Aegean Sea. You've got Greece and you've got Israel. I guess you like the nice temperate climate. So would you rather go on a Beach vacation or a mountain vacation? Thousand percent mountain vacation. Well, I'm a beach person, actually, as you may have noticed from my trips to Greece and and Israel. You're not too tan, but I can see that you probably would like it anyway. Do you play Kadima, which was invented in Israel, by the way? You know what? This is a podcast, not a TV show. So you, I think I encourage all of our listeners to imagine me quite brown from the sun, looking very healthy and tan. Uh, Kadima. I love Kadima. All right. So let's get back on the topic. I was going to go in chronological order, but instead, because you jumped us to the mid-40s, I have two in the mid-1940s places I'd like to visit, John. I'm going to take you with me here. Woo! We're going. What should I pack? Well, you should pack a Brooklyn Dodgers jersey and a baseball mitt. Oh, man. We We're are going, going to Ebbets Field, John, on April 15th, 1947. You know what? That is an awesome, awesome choice. And I cannot believe I didn't think about the chance to visit the polo grounds and Ebbets Field, which were destroyed. They were raised before we had a chance to go see them. Is that the day that Jackie Robinson played his first game? That's the day Jackie Robinson played his first game, John. You are correct. That is, um, you know what, Kurt? Kudos to you. That is a bang up good idea. Right? I wish I had that idea. We'd root like crazy for him. Now, he went hitless that game, but he did reach base on an error, and he eventually scored the go-ahead run for the victory over the Boston Braves. Wow. When he when he got on on the error, did he steal any bases? 
I don't know. That's why I wanted to go watch it with you. Um, and well, I wanted to watch have... the crowd reaction. That's a great idea, Kurt. Good. Well, you're coming with me. Now, what? I'm just going to stay in the 40s and I'm going to stay in New York. I'm going to go a little earlier than this, two years beforehand. Everyone likes to go to New York City as vacation. Everyone likes to go to Times Square, right? When you're a tourist, you want to be in Times Square. I would like to be in Times Square too, but I'd like to be there on VJ Day, August 14th, 1945, because I'd like to either see or partake in the, the kiss. Yes. Yes. I was wondering as you were telling that story, whether that was the site of the kiss. I knew it was at the you know, end of World War II, but yes, being there for the kiss. And, you know, to this day, they're not sure who the two people are. A lot of people lay claim to being the people in the photo. Can you imagine how they felt as that image became such an iconic? I mean, that image captures that entire moment in time. Could you imagine just being an, an accident of history like that and being right? captured in a photo like that? That's and also think about the pure, unfettered joy that it shows. Oh, my Lord, what joy. So those are two places I like to go in New York, John, in the 40s. And you know I want to be in New York in post-World War II anyway, so. Yes, you were made for post-World War II New York. You and Desi Arnaz. All right, so I don't have Lucy on my side. So where else would you want to go? Are you sticking in the Mediterranean? So, Kurt, I am not going to stay in the Mediterranean. In fact, I'm going to move to Central Europe. Ooh. And the night... Nice have borscht? I am not a fan of borscht. You might recall that I have a thing against beets, but the notion of cold beet soup which is not bad enough. You have to throw a dollop of sour cream in to change the color into something completely unappetizing is not my thing. So John, my family, one side of my family is Hungarian. And we had a tradition every Christmas Eve. We had this thing called Gumbelovich that my grandmother would make. And it was a recipe passed down from her mother-in-law who came over from Hungary in the 1890s, 1896. Gumbelovich is basically sauerkraut soup you take you have to find and it's mushrooms but you have to find the juice from sauerkraut not the sauerkraut the juice and you have mushrooms and you have onions and you eat it and it's so sour and delicious and then in half an hour you're going to the bathroom <laughs> okay we're in budapest because yes. it's a great place to vacation it is a gorgeous city you know that budapest is actually two different cities there's buddha which is up on the hill on one side of the danube and there's Pest, which is flat, and it's on the other side of the Danube. And together, of course, they're Budapest. But it's not being a Pest, would you? Don't be a Pest. But it's actually two places. But they had a pretty big decision to make before World War II. Do we side with the Germans or do we side with the Russians? And they ultimately decided that they were more concerned about communism than they were fascism, especially since they had become chummy through trade with Italy and Germany to come out of the Depression. Uh, in the 1930s. So they were more aligned with Germany, chose Germany. And of course, Germany lost World War II. The Russians ended up coming in and occupying. So they ended up with both fascism and communism. And when communism fell, and they were finally free of the grips of that, that had to be a pretty incredible moment in Hungary. One of the things that I really dig about Budapest is that is how they've dealt with their history. So they were occupied by the Russians all those years, and the Russians were famous for their propaganda and putting up statues everywhere of you know Lenin and Marx and Engels and all of those guys. And once they got free of Russia, they actually, rather than destroying all those statues, this is an issue we're dealing with here in the States as well, they basically rounded them all up and put them into this place called Memento Park outside of Budapest. 
So you basically can drive there and you can see all of these incredible and now obsolete statues and pieces of propaganda. And it's a really cool place to look at. Oh, I love that. I've never been there. Okay. Can I come with you? I'm taking you to the Ebbets Field. So you're, you're playing the whole reciprocity game on. No, you. just would you like went, to. I think you'd get a huge kick out of it. So of, so of course you can come along and it is a city absolutely worth seeing. So you remind me, by the way, and this is not where I want to go, but you just reminded me down the Danube a little bit is Prague in, in the former Czechoslovakia. And it's a gorgeous city. But when we were there, we were told the story on top of one of the buildings. I think it's the Opera House or the Symphony House. They had made statues of all the composers throughout history. Well, Hitler found out when they were occupying Prague and the Czechs reaction to Hitler was, we're just not going to do anything. We're not going to tell him anything. We'll pretend we're going along, but we're not. So he said, hey, you guys like Mendelssohn. And I heard that Mendelssohn was one eighth Jew. I want the statue of Mendelssohn taken down from there. So he sent his guys in. The guys went in. They asked all the people in Prague, which one's Mendelssohn? They said, oh, we don't know. We don't know. They knew exactly which one. They kept saying, we have no idea. So they're like, well, if he's one-eighth Jew, we can figure it out. And Hitler sent some guy who was known to figure out if stacked by measuring like the nose and the forehead, he could find out what statue was Jewish. So this guy goes up top, does it, and says, without a doubt, this one's Mendels. And then the Nazis came in, did a big fanfare. They locked it down. They smashed it to pieces. They threw in the Danube. It was Wagner. <laughs> Hitler's favorite composer. Well, <laughs> you know, Prague, which is a gorgeous city, the Charles Bridge there, did not get bombed in World War II. No. I've heard a couple of potential theories. The first is that Hitler really loved the city um, and didn't want to destroy it. I've also heard that the Nazis uh, stored a lot of the gold and, and other things that they had stolen from all of these countries in Europe and stored it in Prague, and he didn't want to bomb his own stats. Do you know why? I don't. I, it's, I like both of those. I would like to go, and it's a place I've been, I was lucky enough to spend two summers there, but I'd like to go back, is to Provence. Oh, Provence. Right? Don't, you you just love, don't you just love the herbs? I do love <laughs> the herbs. Or as they say in England, the herbs. Did, did you uh, have any in your kitchen? I think it was a staple of a lot of kitchens. Yeah, the Herb de Provence. Herb de Provence with yeah. the, like, these little ceramic-looking containers that were everywhere. Everywhere, everyone had them, sachets. Well, that's because that book, A Year in Provence, came out in like 1990. We all read it. It was about a guy who gave up his life in England and moved to Provence and all the problems. I would like to spend a year in Provence. Me too, but I don't want to go now. You know when I'd like to be there, John? When? 1888 to 1889. Do you know why? I want to go to one town, a town you've been to, Arles. So who was uh -huh. in Arles in 1888 and 1889? Uh, that would be Vincent Van Gogh, the subject of a very important song by John McLean. <laughs> he was there for about a year, and it was his most prolific period. He banged out, and he did bang out because there were so many gazillion paintings that you're used to seeing. His friend Paul Gauguin came and visited. In fact, they wrote a letter together when they were there describing all of their little excursions to the local brothels. And they wrote it to another artist friend. And that I think the letter just sold to some museum for an ungodly sum. But anyway, he's having a great time. He's having this artistic just boom where he's painting everything. And then he and Gauguin get into a bit of a fight. Gauguin says, you're an odd duck and goes back to Paris and says, I'm not coming back. 
So Vincent decides to chop off the ear and give it to a maid at a brothel. And he also painted the very famous painting of him bandaged with the ear of the self-portrait. But I'd like to be there. In the sun you'd like flowers. to be there for the ear excision? No, when he's went beforehand and just hang out and maybe drink some pastis, which has hunger inducing qualities. Have you ever had pastis, John? I, I don't know, actually. Pastis is sort of milky white and it smells like anise or licorice. And you get it in, a, in a, like a tulip glass and you get just a little bit of it. And then you get a pitcher of water on the side and you pour a little water in, you drink some, you dilute it, you pour a little more water in. So what else you got for me? I'm going to be in Arnold, and I'm going to be in Dozemary, and I'm going to be in Alexandria, and Brooklyn, and Times Square, and you're going to be in when Israel, you, and Greece, and Hungary. And, and Budapest. I thought when you brought up the south of France that you were going to say that you wanted to be in Avignon in the 1300s. Ooh, yes. Because if I have my dates right, I believe for a very short period of time back then, the papacy which of course was in the Vatican in Rome, was actually moved to Avignon for a short time. I don't know why the Pope moved his court to Avignon, and it was only there for fewer than 100 years. But I thought that's what you were going to say. And of course, there's a famous vineyard that is named after this period of time called Chateau Neuf de Pop, which means? The new house of the Pope. It's my favorite wine of all time. It's amazing. Ah, you like the Rhone wines, huh? I like the Rhone wines because I love the Grenache grape, John. I love the Grenache grape. And in fact, when I was in Chateauneuf de Pop, I happened to be there on their, their medieval day. It was one day a year, and it's a huge festival. And there was a huge line in front of the fountain in, in the middle of this tiny town. And by the way, Chateauneuf de Pop is a tiny little village where every single piece is covered with grapes. So we're in the middle of the village, fountains there, long line. People are on line with fish tanks, bowls, jars. And I said to someone, what is going on? For that one day, all the vineyards tap into the main water line and out of the fountain comes shut enough to pop wine. All the locals go and fill up as much stuff as they can for free and go away. That's pretty cool. So Kurt, I think we need to wrap up today's episode. We took a fun tour of it. We had weird vacation preferences, but you know, that's not the weirdest thing about us, Kurt. No. It's definitely not. And we've seen some amazing things. And we'd love to hear from you guys where you'd go through history. If you feel it, we'd love for you to give us a five-star review on Apple. Uh, Those are fun for us to get and it allows us to do even more smart dribble. So listen, thanks for joining us. We hope you had a good time. We will see you next week with a brand new episode of Smart Dribble where we promise the dribble and hope for the smart. Thank you. Bye-bye. guys. Bye-bye.